I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Alexandra Hudson is a writer, speaker, and the founder of Civic Renaissance, a publication and intellectual community dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth. She was named a 2020 Novak Journalism Fellow and contributes to Fox News, CBS News, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Time Magazine, Politico Magazine, and Newsweek. Her new book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves, comes out next week on October 10th. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us a second time. Thanks for having me, Michael. You were one of the show's first guests 75 conversations ago on episode 11 in December of 2020. You were in the process of writing The Soul of Civility at that time, and it was actually going by a different name titled Against Politeness, Why Politeness Failed America and How Civility Can Save It. It's a title different in content, but more importantly, in tone. So what caused the title change? Was there something that occurred during the writing process that led you down a different road, or was it something else? It's a great question, and thanks again for having me back a second time, Michael. So... I sold my book under this title against politeness to my publisher at St. Martin's, and it wasn't the first time my project had gone to market. So I got my book deal in 2020, and it was right after I got my Novak Journalism Fellowship, my literary agent at Trident Media, Mark Gottlieb, had taken my book to market, and nobody wanted it. It was a book project called The Porching Revolution, which was related to my Novak project, reporting on undertold stories of civic revival and hope across America. People changing the world by changing their communities and making their families and neighborhoods better. And nobody wanted that project. It was funny. I had Mark stop sending me these responses from publishers because they were like, this sounds so sweet and hopeful, but I'm in a give them hell kind of phase of life. So not interested. Thanks, but no thanks. And so the only publisher that wanted it was George Whitty, my publisher at St. Martin's Press, editor-in-chief. And I thought, wow, like called me. He invited me for a meeting at their headquarters in New York City and, you know, wanted to work with me, wanted this project. And I thought, oh my goodness, I have a book deal. This is going to be wonderful. The boss wants this project. Surely it's it's going to happen. And I was devastated to learn a week later that he had taken my project editorial and he was voted down by his marketing team who thought I wasn't famous enough and I wasn't on Fox News enough or whatever. I didn't have these metrics that publishers love to grasp onto. I didn't have enough Twitter followers, even though they're not at all indicative of the merit of a project or even how well a project will do. So that was very frustrating. And he was equally as frustrated. But a year later, I refine the project. I keep writing. I keep thinking. I do a little bit more, you know, radio and television and things like that. A few more Twitter followers. And then my book goes to market again under this title Against Politeness. And it was during that year, it had been really clarifying to me that I I came, and we can talk about this later, more about how I came to this realization. But I clarified my thinking that there is this essential distinction between civility and politeness. And that while politeness is not enough to solve our deep divisions and heal our divides today, that civility might be. So I took my book to market under that title against politeness to kind of clarify that argument and that refinement in my thinking that is central to my book, even as it stands today, called The Soul of Civility. And over the course of writing the book itself, the time came to decide on a final title. And I really appreciate George, my editor at St. Martin's. He thought that it was true to the project to be for something as opposed to being against something. It's really kind of common and popular and it's easy to be against something. It's easy to tear down. 
But it's a lot more difficult to build and to be hopeful in, in these very fraught <laughs> days that we find ourselves. And so a lot of people in media were like, you know, go with against politeness. That's what's going to get you the bookings and the headlines and the virality. It's intriguing. It's provocative. But again, I think that it was really wise of George. I'm so glad I listened to him and followed his counsel and allowing my book to be titled The Soul of Civility because my book is hopeful. It's critical, but it's also hopeful. And it, it's casting a vision for a better way of being and a world in which we are all part of this joint project of living well with others, just this joint project of civilizations. At the end of the book, in the acknowledgments, you write, quote, This book is the product of ideas that I have been reflecting on and grappling with my entire life and was written over a period of nearly 10 years. I became a different person over the course of creating this book, end quote. And this hits at a topic I've always been fascinated by, and one I love exploring with guests on this show, and that is, why do we do what we do? What drives a person to spend years of their life, hundreds, even thousands of hours of their precious time, dedicated toward a specific singular goal, like you have been with writing this book? And so I was drawn in by the question of how someone comes to grapple with the issue of and distinction between politeness and civility at such a young age. So I'd love for you to talk with us about Judith Johnston Bankovich better known to the public as Judy the Manners Lady, who also happens to be your mother. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Thanks, Michael. So my mother is a wonderful human. She is an internationally renowned expert on manners and etiquette. And as I learned over the course of my book, however, she is only one of four women named Judith who are internationally renowned experts on etiquette and manners. One of them is uh, maybe a little bit more famous than my mother, Judith Martin, the Washington Post columnist. Um, and there are two others. And funnily enough, all four of them have ties to Boston, which is a peculiar similarity that they all share. But needless to say, my mother, Judith Johnson Vankovich, is my favorite of the Judys in the manners industry. And my mother, she raised us in this home that was attentive to social norms to the extent that they were this tool to serve others and to facilitate friendship and conversation and community. My mother, she's very polite, very warm. But she's also incredibly hospitable and gracious, and she is kind. Our home was this revolving door of international students and newcomers to our community. We were always having people over for dinner spontaneously or staying at our home for months or years at a time even. And so she just embodied this other-orientedness and love of others that is the hallmark of true civility. Part of my story is that while I kind of always questioned the norms that my mom raised my brothers and I with, I generally followed them. I'm constitutionally allergic to authority and being told what to do just for its own sake. And I always like to have a good reason for why I'm doing what I'm doing. But they did serve me well. My mother said, you know, do these things and they'll help you in school and life. And she was generally right until I took a role at the United States Department of Education. And it was while I was in government, I had everything about what I thought was true and good about the world and, and myself questioned. I saw these two extremes, first of all. One, there are these people with sharp elbows, these people that were willing to step on anyone to get ahead. They were overtly aggressive and hostile. And then on the other hand, I saw these people that at first I thought were my people. They knew the norms, they knew the proprieties, they were polished, suave, and poised. And yet, these were the people I learned who would smile and flatter me one moment and then stab me in the back the next. And that really threw me for a loop because one thing my mother had always said to us growing up was that manners were an outward extension of our inward character. 
And here I was surrounded by people who were polite and had really great manners, and yet they were ruthless to me and to others. So that led me to want to understand better how could we disambiguate the norms that were good from the norms that were bad? And also, how do we grapple with the idea that norms are not all, they're not always perfectly reflective of one's inner interior state and character? And so after I left government, very disillusioned by being essentialized and reduced to one aspect of who I was, which for me was being associated with the presidential administration that I was in and and who the secretary was. I left very disillusioned, frustrated, and upon reflection, realized two things. One, that while these two modes at first seemed like polar opposites, this aggressive hostility and this extreme polling test, I realized that they were in fact two sides of the same coin. Both instrumentalized others. Both saw others as means to their ends as opposed to human beings who are worthy of respect in and of themselves just by the fact that they were human. So that was the first thing I realized. The second was that there is this essential distinction between civility and politeness. That politeness is manners, it's etiquette, it's behavior. Whereas civility is a disposition of the heart. It's inherently moral and it's seeing other human beings as our moral equals who are worthy of respect in light of our shared status as members of the human community. And that sometimes, this is crucial, actually respecting someone means telling them that they're wrong, engaging in robust debate, telling them hard truths, maybe even protest, protesting a corrupt regime or a regime that, or a law or something that doesn't respect the equal dignity of person. So I reclaim the whole tradition of civil disobedience and civic protest in this distinction between civility and politeness. The etymology of these two words supports this distinction I make. The Latin root of politeness is polier, which means to smooth or to polish. And that's what politeness does. It polishes over difference, papers over it, and sweeps it under the rug, as opposed to giving us the tools to grapple with difference head on. And the Latin root of civility is civitas, which is things related to citizenship and the city. And that is what civility is. It's the habit of citizenship and the conduct befitting a member of the civics, a member of the city, which again, sometimes and often requires having robust debate and telling hard truth and disagreeing in public while still respecting our fellow citizens. And so to your question, though, about why I wrote this book, I really couldn't not write it. Part of it was recovering my hope in the world, recovering what I thought was my ideals, what I thought was good and true and beautiful in the world. And I remember I once had a conversation with Tyler Cowan after after I left government, and he told me not to write it. He's like, writing a book's hard. Everyone wants to write a book, but don't actually do it. It's way too much work. He's like, only do it if you have a disease and writing the book is the cure. And I was like, that exactly described my state. Like I was diseased and I had to write this book. I couldn't not do it. And I've done it. And I've said what I want to say. And I am grateful. So I can't wait for, thank you for reading it, Michael, and I can't wait for others to read it too. Of course, if I am to be so bold, I think Judy follows in the long tradition of both 12th century author Daniel of Beckles, who wrote England's first book of manners, and Thomasin von Zierkler, author of the immensely popular 13th century 15,000 word German lyrical poem on manners and conduct. And you write, quote, manners writers, including yours truly, brandish their pens when the barbarity of their surroundings becomes too much to bear, end quote. So when I think of Canada, where you were raised, not born, but raised, 
What were the barbarous features in Canada in the 90s and 2000s that drove your mother to take action? And what barbarity have you seen in America that has focused your ambitions to the singular task of writing this book? It's a great question. I'm not sure I can point to any one thing in Canada. So my mom got into the manners industry kind of indirectly. She was a model in Paris. And when she stopped modeling, she married my father a little bit after that. And my dad was in the film industry. And there were young women who wanted to be actresses and models. And she started teaching these modeling classes that focused on inner and outer beauty. So it wasn't just, you know, how to do makeup and dress well and walk the runway, but it was also how to have conversation, like social graces, and also, you know, just how to be kind and welcoming and inclusive. Those were really popular where they were in Virginia. And parents started coming to her and asking her to teach their kids the same sort of social graces and niceties. So she started doing classes for younger kids as well that were very popular. And she really is just a joyful person. Her interest in this was more positive. Like she wants the world to be this warm and joy-filled place because she has this bundle of energy and like effervescence about her. If you get to meet her one day, you'll know what I mean. It's just irreplicable and inimitable, the joy with which she approaches life. And for me, how I got into this industry, this is how I pursued this project. It was more of like a push factor that I just had to, I had to do. I saw a problem in the world and wanted to be part of the solution. In the example of Thomas and von Zuclair, he immigrated to Germany from Italy and he basically looked around him and he was like, society that I've moved to is not particularly well behaved and their manners, especially among the noble people, are atrocious. And so I have to remedy this situation and write this 15,000 word poem on manners and conduct to kind of shake some sense into these people to put a finer point on it, right? I remember when reading about how in the end of the 19th century, like short stories of the kind that Charles Dickens would write and others in these monthly magazines were basically condemned by some in the elite class that they were destroying the the concentration and the ability of the public to read longer form books, right? And then the radio comes out and then that's condemned because, oh, it's people aren't reading anymore. And then the TV comes out and that's condemned. And so it's not a direct comparison, but I guess the question is, is these things that we think are problems that are specific to our time are often a universal, consistent problem, or we see problems in every generation. So has there been a time when either America or humanity has been particularly polite and civil with one another and we're just an exception right now? Or are we always struggling through and with this problem and you are just the person of the moment to deal with something that never truly is solved? Definitely the latter. That's exactly right. It's a timeless problem that has been around since the dawn of our species. We're profoundly social as a species. We we long for relationship and we thrive in relationship. We become fully human in proximity and with others. And yet we're also defined morally and biologically by self-love. And those two aspects of ourselves are intention. They're coeval with what it means to be human and they are intention. And that is why the joint project of living well with others will always be fragile. Friendship will always be fragile. It is never a foregone conclusion. And so I had a lot of fun reading these etiquette books, civility handbooks from across history and across culture. And I saw this remarkable continuity in the mandates, the do's and don'ts from these self-proclaimed etiquette experts 
And I loved often how it was really prominent people, philosophers, statesmen that cared enough about this question because they knew the small things, the ways in which we interacted every day had big consequences. They were both a bellwether, they were indicative of kind of the health of society, but also they support or degrade a society in that they enhance or detract from our desire to be part of civilization, of, of life with others. And so I definitely think that I'm in the latter group of what you said, just the latest person to say, look at this timeless wisdom that people have come to independently across time and place for how to do life well together. And life together is the stuff of the good life. And I hope that looking to the past is both humbling and cautionary. It's say throughout my book that history is both caution and comfort. It's comforting because you asked if we're the most uncivil season in American history. Like we've fought revolutionary wars, we've fought civil wars, we've had canings and murders on the floors of Congress. We're not there. It often feels like it, and our media culture kind of heightens this sense of apocalypticism, if that's a word, but we're not there, thankfully. But we have been there before, and that is cautionary, that we could be there again, and that wasn't that long ago. We have this mindset, generally, C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, that we're better than the past, that life is getting better. But that's, I don't think we can make that claim. Like, certainly in some ways, materially, you know, in terms of our prosperity, affluence, health, longevity, sure, we're getting better in some ways, but at our core... Our nature doesn't change. We're just as defined by, as Blaise Pascal said, greatness and wretchedness. That is how he defined the human condition, the greatness and wretchedness of man. And we're just as defined by the sociability and the self-love. You mentioned there how historically the degradation or absence of manners in different societies reflected a change within that society's character. And to your mother's point, to Judy's point that manners are an outward expression of our inward character, you rightly said there that's not always true. And in fact, your experience in Washington, D.C. bore that out. So I guess I'm trying to square the circle of, you know, I, I live in California and there's this expression that people in California are nice, but not kind. And people in New York are kind, but not nice. Using stereotypes here in L.A., like someone could be very nice to you. They'll smile and wave at you in the entertainment industry, especially, and be very polite and nice to your face, but then stab you in the back, use the story idea that you had as their own, use you for personal gain, and then toss you aside while being incredibly nice to you. It sounds like you had a similar experience in Washington, D.C. While in New York, again, speaking broadly, someone might use coarse language or, you know, not want to waste your time and like, let's get to the, you know, let's get to it, you know? But they might be very kind to you and stop and, and help you fix a tire or they might be brusque, but tell you how to get to a location within Manhattan if you're lost. Is an absence of politeness or manners within a society always a good marker of if that society is actually kind and well-meaning? You have to have some manners for a society to function. You have to have rules and regulations for how humans organize their society and interact with each other. But rules and Mores can often betray, as you've noted, sinister ulterior motivations. So what's the perfect intersection between these two things? How we outwardly represent ourselves and treat others and what our actual soul is, like if we're actually a good person, where's the connection and disconnection between those two things? Yeah, it's an inherently fraught relationship, an inherently imperfect one, because there's this, there's this passage from the Hebrew Bible, the book of Samuel, it says, man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. We will never fully know, only God will know, a person's soul, a person's character. All we have to go on is what people 
look like, what they say. And I tell this story to kind of hone in on this disconnect between inner and outer appearances and reality. When I was in government, I had the privilege of serving and working alongside members of America's disability community. And one time I was at a institution for higher education created for students with disabilities. And for some reason, I was invited to come to this disciplinary hearing. This young girl, her name was AC, had been hauled before this disciplinary court of administrators and teachers. And there was like this long round table in this dark bureaucratic room. She's surrounded by these adults. Then she's at the very end of the table, like all alone. She's like tiny and she's shivering and she's on the verge of tears. And my heart just went out to her. And her mom was on the phone. Her parents were on the phone on teleconference at this meeting. And one of the administrators begins the meeting. There's been an incident. And my heart just dropped since I remembered every single time growing up that I had been in trouble and like called the, you know, been in trouble with the teacher or something like that. I'm like, oh my gosh, what just happened? And so the teacher proceeds to say that the night prior, AC had committed an act of intolerance. She had put a towel on her head and quote unquote mocked her new roommate who wore a hijab and that was not going to be tolerated. And her mom was like, we grew up in the Midwest. I actually, I'm calling in from Indianapolis, Indiana right now, and they live very close to where I live. Coincidentally, they're just in a suburb of Indianapolis. And she said, you know, we grew up in very parochial Indiana. There wasn't a lot of diversity here. And she said to the administrators, like, what you're interpreting as an act of intolerance was far more likely an act of inhibition and exuberance at, and joy at meeting a new friend. And like, you know, I've never seen this before. Let me try it. And then at that point in the meeting, AC like broke down in tears and said, mom, like, bring me home. I can't do this. Like, bring me home. I'm not equipped. Like, I, I can't do this. And, you know, her mom comforted her and said to the group, like, this probably doesn't help. The fact that AC has long struggled with her disability and long struggled to come to terms with how how she was created. But we tell her that she was created perfectly. God created her with a purpose and perfectly just the way that she is. And like at that point, I broke down in tears and had to leave the room. It was just so beautiful and just like, bro- like just emblematic of like how broken our, <laughs> our society is right now that we made this young girl feel like a criminal because some bureaucrats thought that, you know, this young girl with disability was committing this act of intolerance when it clearly there was no malice there. Like there was not, a, not an ounce of hate in her heart when she was doing that incident. Like she was just absolutely overjoyed and, and, and also terrified at being in that room. And it caused her to think that she was wrong and ill-equipped and not unprepared for being in this institution of higher learning, this new environment. What I like about that story is that it shows how quick we are to judge based on appearances and based on our own predispositions and biases, but how really little we know about what's in people's heart. Like just in the same way that how I was in government and I saw people who were polished and suave and they could smile and say the right things and then be malicious and cruel to people in order to get ahead. In the same way, People and society can not follow certain proprieties and not be at fault. That's not indicative. Falling short of, of social norms or expectations like, is not indicative of a poor character or corrupt spirit. And we have to be humble and recognize that this mismatch of both ways exists. Because as it is, we're absolutely ruthless when it comes to people who don't follow proprieties and norms and expectations. We're graceless. We're merciless. We judge so harshly people that are socially atypical. And it's wrong. It's unfair, especially. And I learned this, I was especially taught this by people, but that this story in particular, but by in general, working alongside people with cognitive intellectual disabilities who, for by no fault of their own, don't know certain expectations. And that's no reason to judge them for it. 
You know, Greg Lukianoff, who's the president for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, said on his episode of this podcast pretty much the same thing, that our overemphasis today on how one conducts themselves in this ever more, I hate this word, but I don't know what to replace it with in the moment, wokeness, like you have to speak this way and you have to use these words and and the words are always changing in terms of what you refer to other people as and the words that you say, you know, every six months they get updated. And he said that this environment is especially discriminatory towards immigrants and towards people who learn differently because people who might have autism or other ways that make them think and learn differently because they might get caught up in getting trapped and using the exact right terminology. And they feel that even if they're well-intentioned, if they use the wrong word, they can really take it to heart in a way that is really destructive to themselves. That's exactly right. Yeah, Greg makes an excellent point there that it's really a status marker. It's a signal of privilege. Okay, so in my chapter on equality, I talk about snobs because there's this great book called Class by a guy named social critic named Paul Fusel. And he says that America is a classless society in theory, but we really do have classes and that we are perpetually status conscious as a society because we're not given these heritable titles and rank that give us our place in life. Like we're very socially mobile and we're physically mobile as well. But as a result, we're a society that suffers from perpetual status anxiety. And this is especially true for the middle class who's always trying to grasp and be a little bit higher class. And that, that the most insecure people are the ones that are most fastidious about the rules of propriety. They're the ones that are constantly surveying those around them to say, okay, you have made this infraction. And, you know, they're the defender of these rules. Why? Because it makes them feel better that they know. <laughs> they know what the rules are. They know what the proper thing to do. They know that you've broken them, even if you don't. And they're allowed to feel smug and self-righteous in that knowledge, even if it has no moral significance whatsoever. And so I talk about this idea, like, what does it mean to be part of this? Uh, Paul Fusel talks about this classless class of the people that just do and say what they want and they know when to break the rules and, and certainly aren't fastidious about the rule breaking and others. Like, that's a very, you know, middle class thing, which no one wants. <laughs> that's an insult in Paul Fusel's book. Yeah, and it's definitely of a piece with the self-aggrandizement uh, that took place in Washington, D.C. that you witnessed, where people would use... Uh, it was like a bait and switch. People would use politeness as a way to ingratiate themselves, but they had ulterior motives. And similarly, there's a lot of folks out there who insist that the ever-changing words are invoked as a way to be kind or be inclusive, but really often they're used as a cudgel and a way to demonstrate one's own bona fides. Like, oh, I am a good person because I'm always up to date in the new terminology. It's a way to congratulate the self rather than a way to actually uplift others. Exactly. And there's a long history of this sort of bait and switch that you alluded to. One that I talk about in my book is the charlatans. The charlatans were the people in the ancient world, ancient Greco-Roman world, that wanted the cachet, the social credibility that came with being a philosopher. So being a philosopher, they were the cool rebels, right? Like the cynics, like Diogenes, who didn't care. The, the famous story about Diogenes is that, you know, Alexander the Great had heard about this guy who didn't care. Like he didn't bathe. He barely wore clothes. He lived in a barrel. Alexander the Great wanted to meet him. The most powerful man in the entire world came to Diogenes in his barrel and said, Diogenes, ask whatever you want of me and I'll give it to you. And Diogenes like casually looks up from his barrel and says, stand a little out of my son. Like basically get lost. <laughs> and Alexander is thought to have said upon reflecting, like if I were not Alexander, 
I would be Diogenes because Diogenes had this incredible freedom, right? Like he didn't have the pressures of the world. He literally didn't care. He didn't give a damn about anything or anyone. So anyway, the philosophers were cool. They were super cool, super hip in society. The charlatans were the ones that would dress up like Diogenes. They would pretend to flout social convention, pretend like not to bathe. They would dress in rags and, you know, yeah, flout convention. But they didn't have the commitment to virtue and the love of wisdom that actually defined a true philosopher. So they wanted the social cachet, the credibility, the perks that came with dressing and acting like a philosopher without the suffering and sacrifice that comes with living a life of virtue and the commitment to love of wisdom. Or in American history, there was the confidence man. The confidence man is, the, is where we get the word con man from. And the confidence man was the person who would be you know, dressed in a dapper three-piece suit and approach you in the street. This is at the time in American history where just at the cusp of urbanization, so people are moving from their small towns where everyone knew everyone and moving to the big city, these anonymous cities where... Everyone had to make a name for themselves and hope to work their way up their ladder. But without things like reputation and family name to go off of, you're constantly having to size people up, assess them fresh and say, you know, are you someone I can trust and and do business with? And so Manners books proliferated during this season in American history, in this 18th century America. And the confidence man took full advantage of that. This is the guy who would, you know, approach you in the street, very suave and dapper and handsome and, and smiling and say, hello, my good man. Like, how are you today? How are the, how's the wife? How's the kids? Like pretending this complete stranger pretending that he knew you. And while he's talking you up and you, of course, you're very flattered that this suave person is making time for you. He's robbing you blind. He's taking your pocket watch. He's taking your wallet. And he says, okay, we'll have a good day. And then it's not till you get to the office later. You're like, wait a minute, where did my pocket watch go? And you're like, well, surely. It couldn't be the confidence man. You know, he was too attractive and polished to to have done that. But really, where did my pocket watch come? <laughs> and so I, I unpack many modern day confidence men and women in our society in my book. I look at case studies from Elizabeth Holmes to Anna Delvey to Simone Levy, the Tinder swindler or the fire festival, like putting together this narrative of we live in a society that really values appearances. We value the external and we're willingly deluded even if it means people are lying to us while it's happening. It's a difficult question that there will always be this mismatch between appearance and reality. It'll never be perfectly resolved. It just requires an enormous amount of humility to try and navigate. Yeah, it's interesting how this type of person has manifested in different forms throughout all of human history and has also been warned against in pretty much every foundational text that exists. I remember there was a passage in the Bible, something along the lines of, you know, be wary of the man who prays on the street corner for all to see. It is the man who prays in private that is a true believer, something to that effect. That's right. So it's it's similar, whether it's the confidence man or the street preacher, whoever it might be, if someone is portraying themselves one way publicly, it's not always a good indication of who they are deep inside. In an essay titled, Can Beauty Be Trusted? You write, quote, we use the small things in life to draw big conclusions about people. If we can't trust the small things, if we can't take people at their word or trust their appearances, It's difficult for us to know what is true and whom we can trust, end quote. Using that as a springboard, I'd love if we could spend some time with this line from George Bernard Shaw, quote, if you will only take the trouble always to do the perfectly correct thing and to say the perfectly correct thing, you can do just what you like, end quote. No, it's great. And there's another great line from Shakespeare. He can smile and be a villain. Like we're so easily seduced by a smiling face and a dapper persona. But like to your point about Shaw, and this is the exact point I make about civility and politeness. 
it's easy to follow the rules, right? The rules are black and white, right or wrong. But sometimes the rules should be broken in order to facilitate friendship, conversation, community, to truly respect people, which is the building blocks of the good life and a democracy. The story I love to tell that embodies this is about Queen Victoria when she was having this grand state dinner and hosting the Queen of Persia. They're sitting down to dinner and the Queen of Persia does the unthinkable. She takes the bowl in front of her and tips it to her mouth. She had taken what was supposed to be a finger bowl to wash your fingers and she had drank it like soup. Everyone stopped to see what Queen Victoria would do. And they were stunned when she took the finger bowl to her mouth and sipped it. Why? She broke this rule of a Victorian England, you know, like talk about fastidiousness for the rules of propriety and etiquette, which is exactly what one of my favorite thinkers, John Stuart Mill, railed against. This corset of society, this Chinese foot binding of society, maiming the human personality, putting them into this little box as opposed to fostering free expression. But she broke those rules to make her guests feel welcome and comfortable and so as to avoid her guests feeling any sort of embarrassment, which might cause her discomfort and not want to come back and might impede the relationship in the evening. And so sometimes it's appropriate and good to break the rules of propriety, but you have to know the rules first to break them. And, and then cultivating that wisdom, that heart of wisdom that says, what are the rules impeding the, the joint project of living well with others and having that wisdom? As of the day of this episode's release on October 3rd, I will be married in 26 days on October 29th. And as that date approaches, and honestly, really since a few months after my fiance and I started dating, we've been talking about our long-term future together and starting a family and what that might mean for where we live. And over the last six months, we've been traveling to places outside of California, partially to vacation and partially to location scout for our future. We've both lived in LA since 2005, both of us drawn here for its big city opportunities and amenities, but we find ourselves drawn to visiting and future casting in smaller cities these days, recently Bend, Oregon and Boise, Idaho. And the feeling in these smaller towns, these smaller cities or big towns or whatever you want to call them, is distinct from a Los Angeles or a New York or a Washington DC or a San Francisco. You know, strangers smile at you on the sidewalk. They wave at you from their garage as you bike by. You contrast this to our neighborhood here in LA. And most people out walking their dogs prefer to look away from you rather than make eye contact for even the briefest of moments. It's a stark contrast, Alexandra, that has us thinking even more about moving away someday soon. So a rather relevant quote from one of the subjects of your book really jumped off the page and grabbed me, quote, so many of us want to live in big cities. We desire the amenities of and the cachet of a large metropolis. But in our hearts, we all want to live in small towns. We each long to feel known and loved. That is why we porch, end quote. Tell us a little bit about Joanna Taft and how she made the word porch into a verb. So Joanna was one of my first friends when I had moved from Washington, D.C., this hostile, you know, den of vipers <laughs> was my experience to what I was hoping would be the bucolic rolling pastures of the Midwest, the American Midwest. And when we moved here, this woman with a blonde bob approached me one day and said, hi, I'm Joanna Taft. Would you like to porch with us? And I never heard the word porching used as a verb before, but we, you know, we're new to the city and of course we agreed to come and we ended up spending the afternoon on her porch with several other people that we had never met. And I learned that Joanna is staging this quiet revolution against our divided and atomized status quo from her front porch. Her front porch is her 
tool of social healing. It's her her little oasis from the yeah our divided and harried world. She curates people from across political persuasion, from across geography in town, across ethnicity, and just puts them in proximity. And then sometimes, like us, she invites people she doesn't know at all and just puts them in the same shared space so that they can get to know each other. They can build friendships, they can build trust, and they can have this sort of camaraderie across difference because we do live in these very siloed worlds. There's this lovely essay published in a now defunct outlet called The Palimpsest by a guy named Richard H. Thomas. It's called From Front Porch to Patio. And Thomas tells a story of architectural history. He says that 100 years ago, we had these great big front porches. Architects built these homes with great big verandas. And that was a social statement. People would sit out on their front porches in the evening and, and wave to passersby, invite strangers on to say hello. And it was just this place of spontaneity and, and being present in your community. It was a social statement. Over the last 100 years, however, slowly the front porch moved around to the back of the home, to the modern day patio. And the patio is a place that's much more curated. It's also a social statement. It's where you invite your family and friends to be with you. You may even move inside your home and watch, you know, sit down and watch a football game, watch television. Again, that, that didn't exist 100 years ago. But that architectural shift tracks a cultural one of other orientedness of communitarianism to what the patio represents, which is more individualistic and more focused on self and our needs rather than other. And I love that Joanna is kind of reviving this porching culture. And she kind of embodies this disposition that, that you can't change the world, but you can change yourself. And if enough of us choose to reclaim the civility and the porching disposition that anyone can have, again, you don't even need a porch. You can use your front lawn or your stoop or you know just meet someone at a coffee shop. It's about having that orientation to others that wants to welcome them, make them go from outsiders to insiders, being gatekeepers in the inclusive sense, like welcoming people into your home and into your life. Like what Joanna did for us was she said, you know, she got to know us and then she introduced us to dozens of people wanting to plug us into the community, help us curate our little niche. And that's such an undervalued skill and building block. Her civility builds community and the civil society that is necessary for democracy, as Tocqueville has so eloquently put. Tocqueville is a wonderful thinker and is throughout my book for so many reasons. But yeah, so to your point about the significance of the porch, it is this important social metaphor throughout my book because it really reflects my philosophy, like my theory of social change, that you can't change the world, but you can change yourself. And enough people choosing to change themselves can make a tremendous impact for better. Renowned Austrian writer Stefan Zweig once said of 16th century French philosopher and inventor of the essay, Michel de Montaigne, quote, Montaigne helps us answer this one question, how to stay free, how to preserve our inborn clear-mindedness in front of all the threats and dangers of fanaticism, how to preserve the humanity of our hearts among the upsurge of bestiality, end quote. One of your favorite quotes of Montaigne is, quote, there is no conversation more boring than the one where everybody agrees, end quote. So what initially drew you to Montaigne and what draws you to him still? So there are many things I love about Montaigne. Montaigne was this figure that straddled two important epochs in history, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. He was sort of the last Renaissance man, and he is an inventor of the essay, his book called The Essays. It invented this format called The Essay, uh, where it was just like an essay in French. I love this. 
It means to try. And that's what he did with his life and with his writing. He made attempts at knowledge and at truth. And that's really all we can do as well. So he's he's an intellectual model and hero for me in many ways. But he had this incredible passion for the good life and had a, had a levity. I actually just got back from visiting his chateau for a second time in Bordeaux, in the Bordeaux region of France. He's on my mind because I'm reading a kind of biography of him right now. He had this really bizarre upbringing. He was really privileged. So he was a member of the aristocracy. His father had been mayor of Bordeaux and a public and civic leader and knew his son would be a prominent citizen as well and didn't want his son to be someone who was out of touch from the people he was going to leave. And again, this is absolutely scandalous. I can't imagine ever doing this as a mother of two young children. But his mother and his parents decided to take him when he was baby until he was like one, one and a half and have him live with peasants in their community, like the lower classes in their community and to be raised by them so that their essence could be part of his. Like he would just be, you know, he would be familiar with their language, their their mores, their culture, so that he would be more in tune with them when he actually grew up to lead them. Which again, I can't imagine a mother saying goodbye to her in her newborn for over a year. But I appreciate the thought. How do people with privilege, like how do they put them in proximity to people of, of different backgrounds, different cultures? It's a really interesting question. So, but Montaigne, he was someone who was incredibly privileged, was afforded every educational opportunity possible. But his dad took it a step further. Like the ethos of the day, the pedagogy of the day was to, you know, spoon feed kids Latin and Ovid. And Michu, as he was affectionately known, as I affectionately call him, his father wanted Michel de Montaigne to have a really joy-led education. So he taught his kids through games and through song and taught him ancient Greeks through games and through song. And just everything that he did was really laced with joy, a joy to vivre, a joy for learning. And I love that ethos as well, because that's something that my parents did really well for me as well. Like I was raised in this really intellectually vibrant home, and I want joy to be the ethos of my home and especially my kids' education. I think so often education is joyless. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, I have to go to school again. I have to do my homework. And that's such a tragedy, such a travesty. And I love what we can learn from Michelle de Montaigne's life. And it worked. It was an experiment of the day because it that was not the norm by any means. But Michel, he loved learning and just loved his books. And he was someone who could have, he was incredibly privileged. He could have just, you know, sat and drank and ate good food his entire life, but he didn't. He was assiduous and he wrote and he studied and he thought. And he was incredibly prolific and insightful on so many different topics that we still read. And he's like the defining thinker on this, you know, XYZ topic, whatever it is. And so there's so many things I love about him, mostly his levity and his just his detachment from the world. And he had the courage to try, which is, yeah, more than we can say for a lot of people these days. We live in this age of moral certainty where everyone has to have the right answer. And any waff of someone changing their mind on something is seen as betrayal, especially in our public realm. Like, oh, you're a you're an equivocator, you know, you a flip-flopper, whatever it is that people say, like changing your mind is a bad thing. But Michelle de Montaigne, you know, changing your mind was a good thing for him because it meant you're growing and you're learning and that you're someone that can adapt with new information and assimilate new information into your world, which is what I think education should really be about grappling with new ideas and assimilating that into who we are and how we live in the world. So lots to say about Montaigne, but everyone should go visit his home in Bordeaux. It's called Montaigne, a little region there, maybe 20 minutes from Saint-Emilion, the wine capital there. And it's owned by a friend of mine. They host parties there. They host murder mysteries. 
I'm hoping they'll turn it into a B&B one day, but you can go visit. It's open to the public. You can go visit Montaigne's home and visit his tower where he lived and wrote. He's in the last, you know, he was born in that tower and he died in that tower. So the last 10 years of his life there. And one last thing I'll say about his tower is, and I, this is something I've, you know, consciously done with my work. He literally sat in the presence of eternal ideas while he was writing and thinking and writing and creating his essays, his works of art. On the beams of his office and the ceilings, there are inscribed great lines and insights from from Homer, from Virgil, from Ovid, from scripture, from his favorite intellectual influences. So he can you can imagine him, you know, thinking about a question deeply and then just sort of sitting back, pausing, looking up at the beams of his ceiling and being inspired, you know, having a certain insight or, or snaps or a thought that that allowed him to keep writing, keep trying at his in his pursuit of truth. And I love that idea. I, I tried to do that with my book. I read a lot of contemporary works, but I tried to always have one foot in the past, one foot in eternal ideas, one foot in a classic book. So that could ground me. I think it's really easy to be pulled into the present when we're surrounded by the present. But I, I really took a page from Michelle de Montaigne's playbook in the creative process by learning from his creative process. To that point, Alexandra, I think this is a perfect question to wrap out our conversation. You've said that the core ethos of the soul civility is, quote, sometimes we need to look back to understand the present, end quote. And Montaigne's personal motto was Cousage, translated to what do I know? And you've spent years now communing with great accomplished people across time. After all that time spent with them, as the soul civility is about to release after so many years in the making, what do you know? What do I know? I know that there is no future for our society without an adequate appreciation of the gift of being human. And that's very much a conclusion I came to while writing this book that a lot of incivility and cruelty and malice in our world comes from people who don't sufficiently appreciate the gift of their own humanity. There's often a lot of self-loathing beneath the cruelty that we see around us online, on television, and that when we don't appreciate our own humanity. It's hard to appreciate the gift of the humanity of other people, the gift of the person in front of us. And that's part of the antidote. One of the antidotes I talk about in my book is this humanizing vision of education, this vision of education that goes back to ancient Greece that was about cultivating our humanity, cultivating our humaneness as well by exposing us to literature and rhetoric and beauty and geometry, like rounding us out intellectually, but also heart, mind, and body so that we could more appreciate the humanity in ourselves and the humanity of others. Ultimately, what civility is, is this radically pro-human disposition, like recognizing and appreciating the beauty and the moral worth of the other and the dignity of the other. And that if we don't do that, and it's increasingly easy to do that, we see that it's not new, but we do see it all around us all the time on social media from our public leaders, this rhetoric of otherizing the people we disagree with, the people that can't be reasoned with, or who are so wrong about a topic or a public policy issue that they're evil and they're not worth reasoning with and they're not worth respecting. That is so dangerous, that sort of moral reasoning. And I hope that I do know constantly. There's a lot I don't know. And you know, my book certainly doesn't have all the answers, but I do hope it helps us think more clearly about the questions that are before us. And I do know that reviving our respect for the personhood of others is an essential and dispensable part of the solution of reclaiming the soul of civility and of reclaiming and preserving our democracy and civilization. It is such a pleasure speaking with you, Alexandra. It was a pleasure in episode 11, and it is a pleasure now. 
You know, you've said that your parents raised you with beneficence or active goodness. And I felt the spirit of that active goodness in your book. I feel it in your work, in your other essays, and in your talks. And in our conversation today, my only regret is waiting three years to have you back on the show. And I, I hope in the future you can be a three-peat. So thank you, Alexandra, for writing this book, The Soul of Civility, which I recommend to anyone listening. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Michael, for having me. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. 